Now, will you turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes and verse 12. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 12, I'll read through, chap, uh, through verse 23 before turning for some elucidation to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll just read the three verses, 17 through 19. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 23, followed by 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. You recall that Solomon has been wrestling with the matter of meaning in life. What's life all about? And uh, he is undergoing some experiments, conducting some experiments that have uh, included a search into wisdom. Could that constitute the meaning of life, the pursuit of wisdom? Then he went on to, uh, failing that, he went on to look at uh, pleasure, a life of hedonism, and uh, spending and building and so forth. He found that too to be vanity. And then we come to verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And 
And now we move forward a thousand years to the New Testament and to Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, chapter 6, verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. The troubled minds of fallen men are by nature skewed. That is, they're off-center. It's a biological offspring and heirs of Adam, our thinking, our thinking, is by nature twisted, bent, unbalanced, and typically it runs to the extremes. One way or the other, our thinking no longer parallels or reflects the wisdom of God our Maker. Sadly, we sinners tend, for example, either to be too much the pessimist or too much the optimist and far too little the realist. We're too much the workaholic or too much the slacker and too little the well-balanced biblical Sabbatarian. And when it comes to material wealth, we either spend too much ultimately finding ourselves deeply in debt, or we hoard too much, thinking little, if at all, of the material needs of others. We're skewed in our thinking and our living, off balance. We run to the extremes. We aim too little for that sweet spot, that golden mean of biblical faith in life. There's a wise old saying that I came across many years ago, in a framed cross-stitch on somebody's wall up in the Amish country of Pennsylvania. It knits together all the tangled strands of human life, labor, and love and puts them all into the proper biblical perspective. That little saying ran this way. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That little work of cross-stitch wisdom gives us a balanced, realistic view of our own life and love and labor. Solomon, for all his wisdom, was still a sinner whose mind and manners ran sometimes to the extremes. On one occasion, you may recall, in Solomon's life and ministry, two women came to him contending over the custody of a child, a baby. 
Solomon's answer to them, bring me a sword. And that, of course, settled the issue. And the baby went to the right woman on the basis of their response to that declaration, bring me a sword. But some judicial experts might call Solomon's method there a little extreme. In this morning's text, we hear Solomon again expressing some rather extreme views and feelings concerning his own considerable legacy as king in Jerusalem and what might become of that great legacy afterwards, after his death. Verse 17, what does he say? He says this, So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. And then verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And verse 20. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I have worked so so hard for this 40 long years to build this kingdom to make it what it is and now he's thinking of what's going to come of it all he's thinking about his posterity thinking of the future of his kingdom and his anxious thoughts leave him in despair thoughtful consideration of one's own legacy seems rare indeed in this 21st century Western culture, though, doesn't it? We would rather squander our children's inheritance than leave them anything that's solid and substantial upon which to build when the senior leadership of our civilization falls to them. Exhibit A, our national debt. By its actions, Congress has determined to leave the next generation of U.S. citizens, our children, to leave them enslaved to an unpayable debt that today stands at 14 figures. 14 figures. That's their legacy as U.S. citizens. 14 figures of red ink. But Solomon certainly wasn't financially underwater as our country is. Whatever his flaws, which he certainly had, King Solomon wisely built the wealth of his nation. He built it actually to incredible proportions. And we've seen this before in Jerusalem. You remember in Solomon's reign, silver became as common as stones in the street. And while he was amassing all this tributary wealth from nations round about, he was also building palaces, gardens, parks, pools, and forests, not to mention the temple of the Lord itself. He was expanding and fortifying the secure borders of Israel. His peaceful reign of 40 years became the high watermark of Israel's power and prestige in the world. It was Solomon's reign. 
Those were the good old days. But remember, Solomon is now an old man as he writes this book, Ecclesiastes. He's lived a full and fruitful life, far more of which now lay behind him than lay ahead of him. And it's time for a wise king to think constructively, to think about the man who's going to succeed him on the throne. Who will he be? What kind of a steward will he be of all this national treasure that Solomon is soon going to leave in his hands? What kind of a steward is he going to be? And the thought of it, frankly, alarmed him, worried him. He shares his train of thought in verses 12 to 17, and it amounts to this. I paraphrase. Solomon speaking says, So far I've considered wisdom, and it's brought me only grief and vexation. I've considered pleasure, and discovered it to be abject folly and a striving after wind. And then I thought, you know what? Wisdom may be better than folly, as light is better than darkness. But in the last analysis, what difference does it make? Because in this world, wise men die too, just like fools. Doesn't seem fair to Solomon. It doesn't seem fair. And the thought of his own demise the thought of leaving this substantial kingdom for which he had worked so hard for so long, the thought of leaving it in the hands of another, the anxiety of it all overwhelms him. <coughs> Culminating in that central problem expressed in verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> Thus I hated <clears throat> all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Well, if you know your biblical history, you know that uh, subsequent events prove Solomon's fears to have been well-founded. His son, his heir to the throne, it turns out the man was a fool. He was a fool. And so after his death, the united kingdom under Solomon became a divided kingdom under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Forsaking the counsel of the wise, Rehoboam is able to retain control of only two of the twelve tribes of Israel. <coughs> only two. The other ten break away and are lost to the Davidic kingdom. Lost to the kingdom of God. They go and serve other gods because folly has real life consequences. And the price of folly among kings is steep. Very steep. But so is the price of folly in our own homes and domestic affairs, isn't it? Dear ones, death is coming. You know it is. 
I know it is. It may come much sooner than you think. Within the next four months, I will have reached the age at which my dad died back in 1979. So this matter, this, this important task of making life count while I have it, this has been very much on my own heart. What's my legacy to be and into whose hands will I be leaving it? As to the property, of course, it's all Mary Lou's. I trust her implicitly after I'm gone to use our joint estate wisely and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. But, of course, there is much more to a man's legacy than his property. Much more to a man's legacy than his estate. And here's the real question. Would be a good question for Solomon. It's a good question for all of us. Are you and I leaving behind a generation of humanity that's wiser and more loving and closer to Jesus Christ for our having been here? It's a question each of us needs to wrestle with and settle because none of us lives or dies to himself. Will our words and deeds leave behind an earthly residue of men who are made wiser or more foolish by the example we've set? The second question worth considering is this. And only you can answer it. The question is, how far is your reach I mean the number of people who are influenced by your life and example. Your reach may be wide if you're a public official, for instance, or a social media influencer. Your reach may be very wide, or it may be, for a season, rather narrow. Perhaps you're, you influence in a major way only the few children that you're faithfully raising there in your own home for the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whether your influence is wide or narrow, whether it's large or small, you have only so many years to exert that influence. So I encourage you in these living years to reach out and extend it, extend your influence as God provides the opportunities. For the glorious kingdom of our only sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ, reach out and extend it. Solomon's kingdom extended from the Euphrates River in the north to the river of Egypt in the south. Never were the secure borders of Israel wider than they were in the days of Solomon. In fact, David wrote a psalm for his coming son the king, asking that his kingdom might endure forever while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. David prayed that that glorious kingdom would reach from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
And we sing a portion of that very psalm here every week, don't we? It's Psalm 72. And may his name of glorious worth receive its praise eternally. And may his glory fill the earth. Amen, amen, so may it be. Amen, amen, so may it be. In this 72nd Psalm, David is speaking not merely of his son Solomon, nor of his son Rehoboam. A man's subsequent history would prove to be such a royal disappointment and a fool. No, born along by the Holy Spirit, in the 72nd Psalm, David is speaking, and we, when we sing, are singing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're singing of the kingdom of God. Let us reach out then and let the world know that name above all names. Let the world know that name of glorious worth. Let the world know while there's time. Even if it's just your little world and mine. Leave the world a little wiser than you found it. That's the challenge. Anxiety over the foggy future such as Solomon experienced. This is a generational problem because we are never in a position as parents or even as grandparents, we are never in a position to see the finished product. We're never in a position to see exactly how our best efforts have borne fruit in the lives of our children, because we're floating down the same river of time and history that they are. So for as long as we live, our families will always be a work in progress. And that's okay. That's okay. Because we were never in total control of the outcome anyway. The work is God's. So Christian parents, take heart. Take heart and be bold. As parents, we do what we can for as long as we can to influence for the gospel as many as we can. And then whether our children turn out to be wise men or fools, the final results, which of course we'll never even live to see, those results are in God's hands. God who works inwardly as we cannot on the human heart. The results are his and he alone gets the glory of them. Timothy was pastoring a church in the upscale city of Ephesus when in the mail one day he received this letter from his friend and mentor, the Apostle Paul. It's a helpful pastoral letter. It's immensely practical. And then toward the end of it, almost as an afterthought, Paul advises Timothy how he ought to deal with certain church members who were prone to rely on their own personal resources to meet future needs. These were, in a city like Ephesus, these were church members of means. 
church members who'd built up a considerable estate there in the bustling city of Ephesus over the years. Church members planning, no doubt, to fund their own needs in old age and then leave the rest to their children. Well, Paul's note to Timothy reinforces what we've been saying here today, that it's not the tangibles that we pass on to our children, it's not the tangibles that make a positive difference in their lives. We ought not labor day and night for the bread that perishes. Rather, let our focus as parents reflect that of the apostle who said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So when you're gone, what will you leave behind? This isn't about the money. It's not about the estate we leave our children. It's about a legacy of love. A legacy of love. The doing of good, the forming of Christ within them, within our children, within their characters. David wished this for his own children, Solomon among them. In the 144th Psalm we read, Let our sons in their youth be as grown-up plants, and our daughters as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. Let's help this next generation grow up as wise, not as fools. Now reaching that objective, of course, represents a major undertaking. But it's the central task of every generation. It is the central task of every generation the raising of wise children. And the burden of it, frankly, falls mostly and most literally in the laps of the godly mothers among us. Let them give all due diligence to the raising of this next generation for Christ. Let the church support them, support their husbands in this absolutely crucial work of the kingdom and its transmission while sun and moon endure. Let's help them. For only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would so put things in order in our disordered minds that we might see our children not as an inconvenience or a bother, but as the central work 
before us as parents and as churches. We pray that they would grow up to be not fools, but wise men, wise women, wise people. We pray that in due course of time, in that coming generation, your perfect will would be worked out in their lives, in their homes as they are started and as they continue and as they themselves have children. May this gospel be transmitted along with every generation and your immutable spirit so work in the hearts of each according to your covenant purposes that they might know life, that they might take hold of that which is life indeed. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.